Pod, 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 pod. Rugby pod. Welcome to the Rugby Pod Beyond Expected series, presented by Asahi Superdry, official beer of Rugby World Cup 2023. In this series, we'll be talking to legends of the game as they tell stories from their career, the unexpected moments on the pitch, the surprising connections, friendships and post-match beers shared off the pitch. We're joined now by a man who's amassed over 100 caps for the Wallabies. A World Rugby Hall of Famer whose legendary extra time drop goal in the semis helped catapult Australia to Rugby World Cup glory in 1999. Stephen Larkham joins us. How are you, mate? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Good at the moment. Yeah, we're in the off season. Six months. You got to wait over here. You got to wait six months to get another chance. So we we bowed out in the semi final stages this year. So yeah, we've got a, a fair weight on our hands. We're in the midst of reviewing the season at the moment hopefully starting some training in a couple of weeks. Lovely. How has it been home? I know you've done the rounds a little bit, spent some time over in Ireland as well. What's it like for an Australian legend being back on home turf full-time? Uh, it's good, yeah. Like, it was good to get over over to Ireland. It's phenomenally well-supported over in Europe and particularly in Ireland. Munster is one of the best teams in the world in terms of the support. So it was great to be over there in, in that environment as a coach, sort of a you know, an up-and-coming coach still. I was head coach of the Rumpies before I left, but really had no idea what I was doing. So, you know, the three years over in Ireland really developed me as a coach and, yeah, trying to bring some of that back. That's that's the challenge, obviously. You know, I love the Brumbies. I owe a lot to the Brumbies and I'm trying to bring all of my knowledge from both playing years and coaching years back into the Brumbies. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about previous World Cups, but I've got to start with this World Cup. You headed back to the Brumbies. You did pretty well. Did Eddie give you a call or would you just decline the call if he did? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have de- declined the call. I would have declined the offer, though. Like, it's, it was pretty intense. You know, coaching over in Europe, playing over in Europe, it's pretty full on. <laughs> super rugby, you know, as a player, I, I came out of super rugby uh, most years, all but two. I, I went into the Wallaby setup. So you kind of six months with the Wallabies and then you're another four or five months there with the Wallabies. And you get a month off and then you're back into that cycle again. As a coach in Super Rugby, you're coaching for six months and then you kind of got this off-season. So a really good time to reflect on the season, have a look at other competitions, try and develop your coaching style. And I kind of need that at the moment. Over in Europe, it was it was full on, right? It was, you know, we had COVID. I was, I was there for COVID and we tried to get a program running the whole way through COVID as well. So there was no break. You get maximum five weeks off then you're back into it over there so I needed the time off and, and had Eddie called me it would have been thanks but it's not for me right now the coaching space really interesting we've got mates like really good mates of ours that, that coach at the highest level as as well now and it seems like from the outside looking in it's one of the toughest jobs not to moan I know there's incredibly tough jobs my mate Mike works in Halfers factory and he loves it by the way but as a coach how hard is it in that space, being on the road, time away from family and all these things? Like how married to your job do you need to be to be the very best? Yeah, I think, you know, most of the best coaches in the world have gone through some sort of breakup. Previously, it's part and parcel of getting to the top. I'm luckily still married to my first wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you look pumped about it as well. <laughs> there's struggles, like there's struggles all the time. As a player, it was pretty full on. Like I said, it was with the Brumbies and you're, you're traveling a little bit. Like back when we were playing, we played in South Africa as well. So you had a two-week two week trip to South Africa. 
you were New Zealand twice a year, you had finals, which might have been away in South Africa or New Zealand. Then you had the domestic legs as well. So there was a fair bit of travel, but it was mainly two days before. Similar to Europe with Munster, like we, when COVID hit, we were traveling by charter just about everywhere. So it was almost the day of, or certainly the day before. And then we were flying back straight after the game, which made it a lot easier. And there were no really big tours, although South Africa came in the last year. In the URC competition, you've got a two-week tour to South Africa as well. So it was pretty intense as a player coming out of Super Rugby with those scenarios into six months of Test Rugby where you were never based in Canberra. Like the Wallabies were never based in Canberra. It was always a camp up north where it was warm because Canberra gets ridiculously cold or at least in Sydney, which is somewhat warmer. So that was a challenge as a player. And and I remember my speech in my last game for the Brumbies against the Crusaders, which we won, but it wasn't enough to get to the finals. So that was our last home game, last round game. And I said, I'll make up for it to my wife in front of everyone. I said, I'll make up for it when rugby's over. I'll make up for it. Now, rugby's not over, obviously. I'm still coaching. But yeah, the, the workload as a coach is pretty full on, right? As a player, you guys would know as a player, it's pretty easy. It's pretty crucial. You come in, you do your job, you go home. I'm encouraging all our players and I was the same. You get away from rugby, really. That's the that's the essence of it. Get away from rugby so that you can bring that intensity and energy back in when you come in for training or a game. But as a coach, there's so much prep work. It's reviewing games, it's reviewing training, it's sitting down with players. And now a different level, obviously, as an assistant coach, which I've been for about half of my coaching career. You are really player-faced. You're thinking about training. You're, you're implementing a lot of training drills. As a head coach now, it's more people management. So most of my time is not just with the players, it's with the staff as well, trying to get around to everyone, making sure that everyone's nice and comfortable and able to do their job to the best of their ability. Yeah, it's one of those scenarios where I promised I'd do it when I get out of rugby, but I'm not out of rugby yet. <laughs> She's going to hold you to that then, mate, definitely. Oh, she does every day, don't worry. Yeah, there you go. Talking about your coaching style now, I used to love watching you as a player, the intellect of a 10 and that Brumbies mentality, who Jim and I were very privileged to have played with a, a few lads that played at the Brumbies as well. Pat Howard was a, yeah. the biggest influence on my career, I think. But you, you always seem quite an intelligent but laid-back character, not in terms of didn't care about the game, but you weren't a ranter or a raver like you see some fly halves in the modern day. What's your coaching philosophy like? Because you, you can't just rant and rave every day, as I'm sure you don't, and you can't just be laid back and, and not really get the hairdryer out when it's needed. So what's your kind of philosophy like as a coach? Uh, very individualised. So trying to understand the player, I think, is my biggest strength as a coach. Um, so introverted, pretty much growing up an introvert um, as a player. As a coach, obviously, communication is key. So I've been working on that, I guess, since I've started coaching. I've been working on trying to be a better communicator, no doubt about that. But understanding the individual is probably my strength and knowing how to push them is something that I keep working on. It's not something that's perfected yet. But the biggest philosophy I guess I have as a coach is making sure that the players have control. As much as you like to think as a coach you've got control on game day, you don't. There's times where you're sending messages down for incidents that have happened five, six minutes ago and you've got no control over what's happening in the next five minutes really once the players get out there. So, you know, I'm very individualised with my motivation and then making sure the players have the ability to control the game when they're out there. So on the colour works thing they do in businesses, you're like a blue, which means like data-driven, can't be trusted, psychopath when he loses. <laughs> <laughs> I will, like, I'll, I'll get angry. That, like, but you've got to know who you can get angry at, right? And 
I probably learned that from Eddie more than anyone else. Eddie was a specialist at picking and choosing the right targets there. Mm, absolutely. Uh, Steve, what's the lay of the land in Australia now with rugby? Because you just mentioned Ireland, like it's booming there. We kind of get snippets of it with Eddie being back in the mix now. Petra Stupasi, good mate of mine, was coaching the scrum as well over there but as in just the kind of lay of the land because the Lions tour says in two years then the World Cup another two years after that yeah I mean there is a lot of hope and expectation that we're going to get a lot of publicity out of the Lions tour the World Cup Eddie's come back in and I think he's done a tremendous job at advertising the game that's what Eddie does he's very good at presenting in front of the media whether it's controversial or not most of it is controversial but it's putting rugby in the spotlight again which we certainly need like we've got so much competition over here from all of the other codes afl rugby league soccer the matildas have just played in australia got tennis like everything really stacks up against rugby so we need as much help as possible at the moment promoting the game trying to get the game back there and i think my biggest challenges as a coach of the brumbies is to try and create an entertaining style we're getting lots of viewers so we've got stan sport as our major broadcaster over here at the moment and from all reports their numbers are quite good but we're not getting people through the gate whereas over in europe when i was with munster we were getting through people through the gate and people were certainly following that online as well so yeah, our challenge, my challenge as a coach is to make sure that we're playing some sort of entertaining style, that we are trying to promote the game as much as possible. Having Eddie back in there at the moment has certainly kick-started all of that for us, but that'll ramp up. All of the promotion of the game is certainly going to ramp up 2025, um, the World Cup in 27, and then the next World Cup as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, you know, you talk about Eddie and the headlines he's given us. The headline that I'm looking at is he hasn't won a game yet, which I think is great. Sorry, Steve, I know you're a proud Australian, but we're not doing very well either, by the way. How, how do you see this going for Australia at the World Cup? You know, is there any expectation in Australia? Uh, can you see, you know, Eddie doing what Eddie does and doing things really well at a World Cup and progressing his team far down the track? Or what's the thoughts? Yeah, still optimistic. I think we've picked, you know, well, Eddie's picked a young team. I'm obviously a little bit disappointed because we kind of got 16 Wallabies on our books at the moment with the Brumbies. So out of a squad of 35 to 40, depending on injuries, we've got 16 of those as Wallabies. And at the moment, we've got five of those guys picked in the Wallabies at the moment. So I would prefer to have a lot more of the Brumbies in the Wallabies set up at the moment. But I can understand where Eddie's going. He's, he's spoken about giving guys an opportunity, and that's what, what Eddie does. He's given some guys an opportunity. Now we've we've missed all of those opportunities so far, and he's now reverted into looking at the next World Cup, but also giving ourselves a chance at this World Cup by bringing these young, exciting players. And I think he has picked, you know, there's obviously a couple of Brumbies players that I would put in there as well, but I think he's picked a really good, young, exciting group of players that could, if they get it right, surprise a lot of teams in the world. Just looking at the results, we've had two Bledisloe Cups this year and we're always, you know, our ranking is really low in terms of world rankings because we're constantly playing against New Zealand every year. It's two, three games against New Zealand. So it's hard to win those games, particularly when they're, they've got so much depth and they're playing with, with um, a good style at the moment. We actually played exceptionally well. If you look at the second Bledisloe, if anyone wants to get out there and have a look at that second Bledisloe, the first 40 minutes was phenomenal rugby, phenomenal rugby that, that would beat any team in the world if we can keep that going for 80 minutes. The challenge will be, I guess, all of these guys, and, and particularly the young guys that are in the squad at the moment, have come out of dry weather footy. Like we had a perfect super rugby campaign where there was hardly any rain. 
And now the game against France on the weekend was, well, sorry, it was Monday night for us. It was raining and I think that's going to be the challenge for these guys. They, they just don't know how to play in those conditions at the moment. So if they can get a couple of those games, if that's going to be a feature of the World Cup, if they can get a couple of those games in the early pool rounds, then it might set them up for some good performances later on. I love how you said New Zealand and you didn't mention South Africa. It's so, I mean, this would probably be from your career, right? And and it's interesting chatting to Australians. You chat to the Kiwis, they talk about South Africa, but you chat to Australia, it's all about New Zealand. Is that still a thing, is it? Is New Zealand the one, even though that South Africa are probably better at the minute? Yeah, that was an impressive game, South Africa's game. I thought that was, that was also a phenomenal game to watch. Um, against New Zealand. Yeah, I guess I'm probably going back to when I was growing up, like the big rivalry in Australia. There was no rugby championship when I was growing up. Um, South Africa wasn't a fixture for the Wallabies for a long period of time. And, you know, we would play in New Zealand regularly. So it was always I'd go down to the club as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, my local club, my parents, my dad was a rugby player, so sort of fanatical about the Wallabies and we'd be sitting there watching the Bledisloe Cups. And that was it. That was the biggest thing. Like, that was the biggest thing in my club. It was always about beating New Zealand. And I guess that's that's continued on with me. Yeah, South Africa, rightly so, uh, number one in the world. They play, you know, a really dominating style of rugby. They've got the players to play that way. And, and it's impressive the way that they play the game. And, and sorry, I should have mentioned them, but I still see New Zealand. <laughs> you know, we talk about it in Super Rugby now. So Super Rugby is only Australia and New Zealand now, right? So I'm constantly thinking about how to beat the New Zealand teams because since the inception of Super Rugby, Brumbies have pretty much been the best team. Now other teams have won it in Australia, I get that. But we've been the most consistent performing Australian team. And our challenge every year is obviously beating the Australian teams first, but it's that next step up then. Can we beat the New Zealand teams at home first and then can we beat them away? No Australian team has beaten a New Zealand team in finals in New Zealand ever in the, in the history of the Super Rugby competition. So that's where my head is at the moment, certainly New Zealand. Well, let's take your head back then to 99, that amazing World Cup over on our shores, some unbelievable memories. You had a, an amazing team, some big characters. Tim Horan, I had the pleasure of playing with him for a year at Saracens. Yeah, John Eels, I need to ask you, how does John Eels end up kicking goals? Was it a bit of a joke to start off with Ilsey, come and have a go at this and he's just ridiculous? Or how, how did that start? Because what a sight that was. Well, that's the problem when you have a 5'8 who can't kick goals. Other people have got to step up and do it. That wasn't my forte. I was, I was a kicker growing up. Like I was a halfback growing up. And I did all the kicking for my junior teams. And I did kick for the Brumbies and the Wallabies when I first started. And then I had my knee injuries, knee injury before the 99 World Cup. And then I just struggled to get the hours. You know what it's like, Goody, you obviously know as a goal kicker or kicker in general, the, the amount of hours and the amount of kicks that you have to put in through the week to be a good kicker on the weekend, I just couldn't do it. So whilst I had a pretty good eye for kicking, I certainly wouldn't have had the percentage. So I was a clutch kicker if the other guys had fallen over. So we had sort of Joe Roth was a goal kicker, Sterling Mortlock was a goal kicker, Matt Giddo was a goal kicker, John Eels was a goal kicker. Like there's probably five other guys that were ahead of me because I, I couldn't put the work in. But given the opportunity in the game, my record was pretty good. I was something like 29 kicks in my professional career, 27 out of 29, something like that. So I only took one. So like if I was kicking for the day and we got a penalty that was not right in front with, with sort of 22 metres out, I'd say we're going to the corner. Anything outside of that, I'd be putting it over. <laughs> um, yeah, so some pretty phenomenal 
phenomenal players. You're right. I think like undoubtedly that team, that 99 Wallabies team was the best team in the world. Going into the tournament, surely favourites going into the tournament, the form that we showed through the tournament. And then if you look at the individuals as well, I think how many of those guys would have played in a World 15 at some stage in their professional career? And I would say just about everyone, yeah, everyone, including the reserves, would have been in the World 15 at some stage in their position. So we were blessed, I think, just through that period of having really good players, you know, some some core players out of the Brumbies, but the Reds made up the bulk of that team as well, sort of a spattering from Reds, Waratahs and Brumbies. But um, the Reds had had a lot of success before Super Rugby kicked off. Um, they were the Super 10 champions. And then that sort of carried into Super Rugby and then the Brumbies had a bit of success. And, yeah, it was just a phenomenal period for Australian rugby. We'd, we'd won everything that there was to win. We'd won Super Rugby not before 99, obviously around that era, 99 through to 2004. Brumbies won 2001, 2004. We won the Cook Cup. We won the World Cup. We won the Bledisloe Cup, Rugby Championship. Like everything that you could win in world rugby, we won. And it was the nucleus of that team from 99 that went on to do all of that. And when you go through the archives, Stephen, you mentioned not kicking. But one of the most iconic things that I think we've seen was that semi-final against South Africa. Was that a clutch kick 48 metres out or...? 68 metres out. I don't know how far it is now as the time's gone on, but it is one of the things that sticks out, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for me, I mean, there's a... I was just out the farm. Dad lives on a farm. I grew up on a farm. I was just out there. He's down the coast house at the moment, so I just went out there to try and look for some stuff that we left out there when we came over to Ireland. And there was a... Not a painting, but it's a, it's the six best moments in Wallaby history, and mine is one of those in terms of the kick. So, it's yeah, it's special to be sort of remembered that way. Um, it was a fluke. It was 100% fluke. Like we'd be drawn at full time and came into the sheds and the assistant coach, Tim Lane at the time, said, if you get a chance to take a field goal, just take it, knowing that my record was zero from about 100 at that stage. <laughs> and in the back of my head was you know, big pressure game, pressure moment. Everything was about territory. Playing down the other end of the field, if you make a mistake down there, we've got a chance with the best goal kicker in the world at the time, Matt Burke, he'll slot three points. So it was getting the ball, hit Grazy up off the line out, and then I get it on second phase and I didn't see anyone on the outside of me. Like I thought there was, you know, that was a low percentage play, throwing it wide. And the second thought was, we'll just kick it dead. But they just brought in the law change where you couldn't kick it dead. If you kicked it dead, it came all the way back to the scrum. Previous to that, it was kick it dead and it went to a 22, which would have been great for us as well. The only way you could get that result was by taking a field goal and if that missed, it was still a 22. So that was in my head. I'll just kick it down here with a field goal, kick it dead, and then they'll have a 22 restart. And it was just one of those fluky things that started off the boot outside the right up, uh, upright and it, and it sort of hooked back massively and then squared up through the posts. And I was as surprised as anyone. I, like I don't, as a player, I never showed emotion on the field. I thought um, you can never give away that emotion because it'll always come back and haunt you. And it was one of those moments where I just couldn't, you know, I just beamed with my mouth guard, super happy. Rofi came up and gave me a cuddle. I was running backwards and then sort of dawned on me we've still got a game to, to play here. But at the moment, the moment that it went over, it was, I think I've just won the game. Now, don't tell anyone this, but Berkey, Berkey's filthy because he obviously after that then kicked a penalty goal that secured the win for us, maybe two even, and I get all the- No one talks about it. No, no one talks about his. Yeah, no one remembers that, Berkey. Obviously, leading into the, the World Cup, you were favourites, as you said then before. And that World Cup was 
the first time a lot of eyes had been on a global tournament, I think, from especially this side of the world, after 95 with the Jonah story. The whole France-New Zealand semi-final, which was at Twickenham, the most unbelievable game. Building to the final, and I, I look back, World Cup finals are normally tense affairs, aren't they? And you, you see that in history, you know, some close games. But that final that you guys are going into against the French... Was the sheer confidence, was the sheer belief, was the, this is just going to get done? Because you had a little scare against Africa in the semi-final until the golden right boot comes out with a monster drop goal. But was it just an expectation of we're the better team and we need to rock up on the day and, and win comfortably? Because it looked comfy from the outsider's point of view. Like we had been together for two years. It was a two-year build-up and Rod McQueen was our coach. Like he based us up in Queensland in Caloundra on the coast, a relatively small coastal town. Um, we had our own training facility, a couple of fields that we could train on, a big gym, a pool beside that gym, accommodation where the whole family could stay. And, and it was a two-year build into that tournament. So we'd been working a long time into it. We had the best defensive record in the round games. Only one try was scored against us leading into the finals. So there was a lot of belief in the team. That New Zealand-France game was a real shock to us as well. We'd done all of our homework, obviously playing New Zealand in the Bledisloes. We had a pretty good game plan in terms of how to beat them and we were just going to march that out for the final. And then we got shocked like everyone else that the French turned it on, scored some amazing tries. And we didn't actually have a game plan for the French and probably didn't have enough time to even think about it. The coaches certainly hadn't thought about it. So when you look at that game, we, we just kicked. I just kicked the whole time down the other end of the field, backed out of fence. Berkey kicked penalty after penalty after penalty. Tuny scores in the corner, you know, second half, late in the second half, and then and then Owen scores in the second half as well to sort of secure that win. But that blew the score out right up until that point. It was sort of trading penalties. And we were just, there wasn't much to it. We were just trying to back out of fence, play down the other end of the field. And we knew it had all come together if we got opportunities. I think that was that was the, the special element of that team was that we were excellent at capitalising on opportunities because we had that combination. We just knew that there was an opportunity here to take and we were yeah, the best team in the world at taking those opportunities. Stephen, we're building a CanPie 15 for this tournament. So I just need three players that you'd like to share a beer with. They could be people you've met, people you haven't met, people you played with or against, it doesn't matter. I guess the first guy would, would probably be Justin Harrison. You guys probably know him. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a, little, bit, he's a little bit like you, Jim. Oh, he's no. A Kia. <laughs> he's a little bit like me. Go on. Why? What have you heard? So we call him a Kia, as in K-I-A. He's a know-it-all. He knows everything. I uh, know it all. He's got the gift of the gab, similar to you, Jim, as well. Similarities there. And I don't know whether this is true or not, but he is mostly always right. So... It's good to have people like that. I guess that's you, Jim, right? No, that's not Jim. Yeah, no, I always think that I'm right. I spent a night with him in Hong Kong and he refers to himself as the pregnant snake and I don't see myself as that. I'm in a lot better shape, <laughs> is what I want to say. He's been through the mill. He has. I just saw him after the game, Australia versus France, and he was interviewing a couple of players there, Tate McDermott and one other player. And he's got the side profile going, but he's got his jacket open and he's 100% the pregnant snake. And it's very embarrassing for him. There's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, he's, he's certainly let himself go. We just had a 2003 reunion, actually, a week and a half ago in Sydney. And I was staying with Goog that night because I live in Canberra, obviously, and I was up in Sydney. And yeah, we were, we were the last ones there. I wasn't drinking too much, but um, 
he was there right till the end, which was about one thirty, and they started at 12.30, so that was a pretty good effort and he'd been drinking solidly. Yeah, he's one of those guys that can certainly handle his drink. I won't say what he did at the end of the night, but he can he can normally handle his drink quite well. That a boy. So he's first in. Surely you're going to go George Gregan as well, your partner in crime. I could, yeah. I mean, Griggs joined us late, so he wasn't in Sydney, obviously, so he joined us via Zoom when he woke up and fair effort to him. We started playing some drinking games at, I don't know, about 12.30 at night, our time, and it must have been mid-morning for him and he, and he lost four in a row. We didn't rig it or anything. He lost four in a row and he wanted to kick on, which was good, and we, we were obviously exhausted and we, we cut the Zoom off, but he was pretty... Pretty keen to kick on, yeah. He's like Griggs to have as someone that you'd want to go out and drink with, yeah. I mean, he's going to open a lot of doors for you, isn't he? So he's going to have some value for you, one. And then two, I don't know if you know anything about his physique, but that always can be quite entertaining. And then the third thing is, yeah, he's quite funny. You would have been out with him a couple of times. He's someone that um, can also talk exceptionally well. He remembers everything. He's got all the stories. He's got all the lingo from day dot with the Brumbies to the Wallabies all the way through. He remembers everything. So there's some amazing stories that he can relive. And mostly when you go out and drink, it's all about living, reliving stories because you always want to remember how good you were, right? Greg's been on there for sure. Yep. What about the rig though? I don't know that. I know that he's into his training. He's got an online PC company, but more specifically, is there more stuff around the rig? Is it below the rig? I mean, what is it? Let's just leave it that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's fine. We had a, hey, Steve, we'll get him in at some point. We'll put him into the filthy 15, if that's what it is. So we've got Justin Harrison, we have got George Gregan, and you've got to pick one more. Okay, so I'd probably just go with Eddie. Like, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a rugby nut. Rugby is now my career. Um, as much as I didn't want to be a rugby nut, about halfway through my career, you know, you get to that stage where I've got to get away from rugby. It's exhausting. I've ended up in rugby and, yeah, I'm passionate about it. I'm certainly passionate about the Brumbies and rugby in Australia. And if you are going to be that sort of a person, then you've got to pick someone like Eddie Wright who knows everything about everything rugby, who's also, you know, I've been out a couple of times with Eddie. He's also extremely funny. He's got um, a really dry sense of humour. So that's important on a, on a night out. But then, yeah, just to sort of pick his brains, I guess that would be more of the sober conversation that you would have. It would start with Eddie just trying to pick his brains and then you'd move on to Gorg and Griggs and, and get a bit of a laugh out of those two. You probably don't want to talk about it, but in reality, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to English rugby. <laughs> Johnny Wilkinson drops the goal. What was the build-up like? Because it's a home tournament. You were probably favourites against England. Were you? Not sure. We took it home. Must be devastating, but how was the feeling before the competition leading into it and then obviously watching us lift the trophy? Sorry, mate, that sounds awful. Uh, well, let, let's just clear that up first. I turned my back as soon as you lifted the trophy, so I can't remember that. And to actually allow England into that position was my fault. I was in the bottom of a ruck and obviously knowing that field goals and Johnny Wilkinson was out there and field goals would play a part in the World Cup at some stage... I'm trapped at the bottom of the ruck and Goog, Justin Harrison, is at 10 defender or post, whatever you call it these days. And I see Johnny Wilkinson was, was sort of out there from my position on the bottom of the ruck. I'm looking out there at Johnny thinking, okay, he's taking a field goal here. So I'm screaming at Goog, you've got to go and get Johnny, got to get Johnny. And Dawson was the halfback. Dawson, he threw the dummy and went straight through where Goog should have been defending. Gets him into the 22. <laughs> 
And then sort of, you know, a couple of phases later, they set themselves up in that position and I find myself in exactly the same position Gug was in. I had a chance to go after Johnny, who was just there, and, you know, he, I think he, he switched from his left foot to his right foot because he got all that pressure. Or I was waiting at 10 because I didn't want Dawes to run again. And I ended up in two minds and I just had to sit there. So I'd got no pressure on him. So I feel 100% responsible for putting England in that position where Johnny had the opportunity to win it and he took it. He did. And you know what it's like to win a World Cup. So when Johnny kicks that drop goal, I know where I was. I was 21. It was my 21st birthday party. I was English at the time. So I was supporting England, of course. When that goes over, did you know? Did you know that that was it? Did you feel that that was the end? And how, how did you feel in that moment being at home in Australia favourites going into that off the back of the last World Cup as well? Yeah, I guess a little bit surreal for me because I really had no concept of the build-up. I was just in a game of rugby at that stage. Yeah, it sort of dawned on me, I guess. You know, it took me two years before I watched that game again. That's how much it hurt. We celebrated that night, obviously. We went into town and, and, you know, had a few beers for the journey that we'd been on. To be taken away in the last moment like that was pretty devastating. And it's the World Cup final. So there's no bigger game in the game than the World Cup final. Just one last question from me. Going into that tournament, you guys had come off the back of some massive losses to the All Blacks. There was no real expectation that, well, maybe that's just from a New Zealand side, that you guys could make it to the final. You look at teams going into this World Cup in similar situations like England, like New Zealand getting pumped by South Africa. How much do those games pre-World Cup matter in your eyes, considering what you know from 2003? Well, if you look at it the other way, and and I'll, I'll put the shoe on the other foot, particularly coming from Ireland, I think Ireland have probably been favourites going into every single World Cup because of their form coming into the World Cup and ultimately failed when the pressure comes on in World Cups. Now, for whatever reason, that's happened for them. And I'm not saying that's going to happen this year, but we had really strong belief. I think what it comes down to is combination. So the ability to have your best players on the field in the big games and to have enough consistency going into that big game for those blokes to find some connection. So with Eddie, I guess with the Wallabies, you've got five games in a row that we've lost now, but we have for the last couple of games started to find some really good form in patches through that game or through through those games. So there is an opportunity with this group, if he can keep them together and keep them on the field, keep that combination together to build it through the campaign. And, And we did that in... 2003, you're right, we didn't have very successful lead-in to the World Cup, but we had a lot of belief. We had a camp up in Darwin that solidified the team. You know, you've obviously got to get that mix right. You've got to get your training atmosphere right where the boys are fit and know what they're doing, but you've also got to get that connection off the field. And Eddie was really good at doing that leading into 2003. He did the same thing with the Wallabies, took them up to Darwin. I don't know exactly where they went in Northern Territory, but similar sort of a field, trying to get that connection off the field. And then they're showing those glimpses. So for us, it was, you know, a combination of the stuff that we did off the field, the characters that we had on the field and making sure that we had the right team on the field for that final with enough continuity leading into that final to to play well. And we did. We played well. It just, it just slipped away from us in the last couple of minutes there. Lastly for me, Stephen, before you go, what's it like to win a World Cup? You mentioned your dad was a massive Wallabies fan. 
I mean, I can't even imagine how he felt, but the fact that you've won it, how does it feel? Is it something that you reflect on? You know, speaking to a couple of people post that as well, it's it's not something that I reflected on in my career at all because I was 24 going into that year, 25, during the World Cup. And it felt like I was just on the start of my journey and that there were going to be many more to come. And now I guess you look back and you start to realise, I've been there as a coach as well with the Wallabies in 2015 and we lost the final there to New Zealand as well. You start to realise the more you've been in the game and and the more prestige that, that gets built up around the World Cup that it is really difficult to win, that you've got to win pretty much every game through the tournament to win the trophy and that's... That is a tough ask. So I think now yeah, to have had that ability to win a World Cup and to have taken it was pretty special. Are my kids proud of it? Probably not. My grandkids will probably be proud of it. I think it's that's the way it works with your lineage. But I, I took, like out of that 99 World Cup, I got inspiration for that 99 World Cup out of 91. I was of that generation in 1991 when we won it you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old who was mad about rugby in a family of mad about rugby people, that I got the inspiration from that to then go on to win 1999. And, yeah, there's a couple of guys that in this team now that are probably old enough to, to know, you know, some of the players in the 99 team, but the majority of the guys haven't got the inspiration of a Wallabies team winning. So, yeah, it's special for me now, but at the time, certainly as a player, it was, it was something that I thought I would do again. And your dad, what was he like? They were over there, so they were, yeah, they were, you know, proud. I guess you don't necessarily see it as a young kid. You don't see how much it means to your parents. As a parent now, I obviously see it the other way, and, and, and I also see the fact that I don't want to get too excited when my kids do it. But dad was over there with some good friends with my mum and was certainly part of the celebrations, and, yeah, it was special for them as well. You know, they've got the stuff up around the house He's proud, I guess. He's proud, one, to be a rugby player, to be a, a Canberra rugby player who's been a part of the Brumbies set up and now to have a son who has represented Australia because, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that that's what everyone wanted to do in my generation and certainly the generation before in the amateur area. It was all about playing for the Wallabies. So, yeah, to have made him proud is, is a pretty special thing for me to take with me. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on, mate. It's been class to hear you chat about the the World Cup and, and firsthand. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.